Good to be with you this morning. My name is Jared Huntley. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Pillar DC. Um, this morning, we're, we've been working through a Bible reading plan uh, all year, kind of preaching through that. Uh, this morning, I'm going to break the rules, and I'm going to step outside of the Bible reading plan this morning. Uh, I just sense that God wanted me to do something else, and so we're going to actually be in the book of Mark uh, today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15, and so um, you can... Uh, take a moment to turn there in your Bibles, um, and if you don't have a Bible, there are uh, the words will be on the screen behind me. Um, it, you know, I once heard someone say to me, uh, I think it was like last year, uh, they said, I wouldn't want to go to a church uh, all the time only hearing about the gospel. That would be boring, and I wouldn't learn anything. I think they, if they, all that they talked about was the gospel every, th- every week, like that would just get old. And, you know, it's, it, it, we kind of, some of us chuckle and some of us laugh, but, you know, I've heard that far too many times, actually. It seems like I, I hear that uh, too many times to be comfortable with. It, the gospel is foundational to all that we believe as followers of Jesus. And we talked last week, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We talked about how uh, the, the gospel, the word of the cross is foolishness to the world. And then in chapter 2, Uh, Paul tells the Corinthians, he said, I I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is the greatest news ever told. You could tell me the gospel a million times and I'd never get tired of it because the good news of God's love is limitless. God is limitless. You know, my wife has told me I love you many times. I've heard her say I love you over and over and over again, but I've never thought to myself, you know what, I wish you would stop saying that. It's getting kind of old. I wish you would tell me something new. I'm tired of hearing my wife tell me that she loves me. How boring. You know, if you're bored of the gospel, it indicates that most likely you know it in your head, but it hasn't truly sunk in in your heart. Because once the gospel has truly sunk in in your heart, it can never get old. It never gets boring. It never loses its luster. It's always glorious. It's always beautiful. There's nothing bigger or better to move on to. There's no new knowledge or exciting uh, theology that's better than the gospel. There's nothing, well, there's no theology outside the gospel either, but that's another sermon for another time. There's nothing more applicable to your life than the gospel. The gospel is the good news that unlocks every single promise in God's word. You know, this week, if you did follow along with the reading plan, one of the passages we read was 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20, uh, Paul says, all the promises of God are a yes in Christ Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that has purchased every single promise in the Bible for us. The reason that we can read the Old Testament and the New Testament and and those promises can apply specifically to our lives is because of the gospel. Because the blood of Jesus purchased those promises for us. Because the blood of Jesus has made a way into a new relationship with God. And we're going to be looking at a passage this morning that tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And you may be tempted to hear a passage like this and think, well, I've, I've heard this before. I already know this. I've read the story of Jesus' crucifixion over and over again. But let me encourage you this morning to come to this passage as if you've never heard it before. This isn't just a nice story to listen to and then move on. It actually has immediate implications for your life and for my life. The main point of this passage is pretty clear, and yet it's really profound. I'll go ahead and give it to you right off the bat. The main point of the passage is that in in this passage, you're going to see Jesus take the punishment you deserve to give you the love that you don't. Jesus took the punishment you deserve to give you the love that you don't. So let me read. Mark chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 21, and we're going to go through verse 39. This is the word of God. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. 
And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let me pray. Jesus, the words that we just read make me very aware that we are standing on holy ground right now. God, help us to see and understand and grasp the implications of what we have just read. Those few paragraphs we just read have changed all of eternity. Those few paragraphs we just read are the culmination of redemptive history. Got all of the Old Testament, all of Scripture leading up to the Gospels pointed to that moment where Jesus breathed his last. And everything that we do as a church from, from that point forward is centered on that moment where Jesus, you breathed your last, where you died for us and said, it is finished. God, please help me, help us to comprehend the love of God that we see here on this page. Help us to understand the implications for our lives of the crucifixion of the eternal Son of God. Lord, help me as I preach. God, apart from you, I can do nothing. Lord, I pray that people would not see me, that they would not notice me, that they would see you. I pray that every single one of us would just be in awe of who you are this morning, Jesus. I pray that you would be glorified we are not here for anyone else or anything else except you. You are the reason we are here this morning, Jesus. We are gathered together to lift your name on high and to worship you. So God, please be glorified by everything that I say this morning. Help me to rightly divide the word of truth and help us to rightly hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So my aim this morning is to show you uh, three different ways that God wants you to respond to the truth this morning that Jesus took the punishment you deserve to give you the love that you don't. And to help us get there, I want us to answer first, I want us to answer an important question, one that I don't think we, we think deeply enough 
as often as we should. That question is, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? And I'm going to give just four reasons this morning, although there are many more reasons than four. Um, In fact, uh, John Piper wrote a book one time called 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. I'd commend it to you. It's a really good one. But I'm going to give you four that I see in this passage. And then we're going to talk about the three responses that we should have to that truth. All right. So let's jump in. Why did Jesus die? First reason Jesus died was to be the substitute for sinners. To be the substitute for sinners. In verse 33, we're told that darkness came over the whole land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, which would have been noon to 3 p.m. So normally it doesn't get dark outside from noon to 3. So we should immediately see that and go, hold on a second, something unusual is happening here. This is a supernatural event. It, It wasn't just an eclipse, it was a miracle. Darkness in the Bible signifies and symbolizes God's judgment. And this three hours of darkness is pointing us back to the ninth plague in Exodus. Anybody remember what the ninth plague was? Darkness, that's right. Three days of absolute pitch black darkness that came upon Pharaoh in Egypt when God said, let my people go, but Pharaoh refused. And that three days of darkness in Egypt was followed by one final plague. Does anybody remember what the final plague was? It was the death of the firstborn. The three days of darkness in Egypt was followed by the death of the firstborn. And for the Jewish people, it was the death of the sacrificial lamb in place of the firstborn. It's when Passover was instituted. And so they took a Passover lamb and they sacrificed the Passover lamb and God told them to put the blood on the doorposts. And then uh, when uh, the angel came through, he passed over the homes of those who had a, a, a sacrificial lamb for those who had atonement. So though Israel deserved judgment, God had mercy on them and provided a means of atonement for them. So the lamb was sacrificed in place of the firstborn. And this time, in the book of Mark, instead of three supernatural days of darkness, it was three supernatural hours of darkness. And instead of a sacrificial lamb slain as a symbol of God's atonement, At the first Passover, it was the Lamb of God slain as God's actual atonement at the last Passover. Why do we need a substitute? Well, you and I deserve death. We've all broken God's commands. We've dishonored God by worshiping and serving things that He has made rather than the Creator. We failed to keep God's commands And because of that, we deserve the curse of the law. Jesus is innocent. Jesus deserves life. So often when I talk to people about how they think they can be right with God, I'll hear something along the lines of, well, I just need to be a good person. God just wants us to do our best. If you have the right intentions, if if you do good and don't hurt others, then God will let you into heaven. But the problem with that is that our best isn't good enough. Even our best efforts fall short. And a guilty thief can't stand before a judge and say, oh, I tried my best to be good. I mean, you can stand before a judge as a guilty thief and and say that, but you've still got to pay the punishment for your crime. You've come up short, so you have a problem. That is why Jesus came as our substitute. That's why he came to die in our place. On the cross, Jesus took the curse of death that we deserved. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The Jewish authorities wanted Jesus crucified because they knew Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 which says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. They believed Jesus was a blasphemer. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, they wanted him dead for it. Because they believed that Jesus was blaspheming by claiming to be God. And they wanted everyone to know that Jesus was cursed by God. And ironically, he was. Just not in the way that that they thought. They had no clue that he was being accursed for them. They thought they deserved God's blessing and that they were righteous. 
And Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born, and he said this in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Verse 37 of Mark 15 in our text says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. John's account records the actual words here. Uh, if If you go and you read the account in the book of John, Jesus actually says in his last cry, it is finished. And that means that if you are a follower of Jesus, then this was your judgment day. This was your judgment day 2,000 years ago. It's already happened. Jesus paid off your immeasurable sin debt to God. That's why Paul can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Even for those of us who still fall short, and guess what? We all still fall short every single day. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. That's what grace looks like. Guys, this is one of the reasons we should never move on from the gospel. We should never think, well, I think I've got the gospel now and I can move on to bigger and better things. There is no bigger and better thing. There's a reason that God calls us sheep in the Bible. Sheep are not the sharpest tools in the shed. They're not the brightest animals. Sheep tend to wander off by themselves. They tend to think, well, I'm just going to go over here into this field by myself and go get some grass and wander off alone. And they're absolutely helpless. Sheep, will, sheep are known to do things like walk straight off a cliff, uh, wander off alone and get you know, stuck. Uh, they're known for just wandering off alone and getting eaten by wolves. Uh, there's, you know, if uh, sheep don't have a shepherd that uh, shears them, then when they get wet, they can actually become so waterlogged that they'll fall over and they literally can't get up. And they need somebody to like pick them up and put them back on their feet. That's how dependent we are. Like some days, we have those days where we literally are such a mess that we just fall over and we can't even get up. And we need, we need our shepherd to come and pick us back up and put us on our feet. The gospel comes and picks us up and puts us back on our feet. Because we're, we're prone to gravitate back to a performance mindset, aren't we? God isn't going to answer my prayers. I missed my quiet time yesterday. Anybody ever thought something like that before? Like you're discouraged about prayer because you haven't been having your quiet time and think, well, God's not going to answer me. God's not going to love me because I, I haven't been checking the boxes of what I think God wants me to do. Or I don't even know if I'm saved. I just gave in to the same sin for the, for the sixth time in a row. I can't seem to, to get past this thing. I must not even be a Christian. But what exactly did Jesus miss that you need to mop up for him? Did he miss a spot when he cleansed you of your sins? Did he forget to cover some of them? Of course not. When we sin, there's a reason that we, that we feel uh, bad about it. There's a reason that we feel guilty for it because we've got the Spirit of God inside of us. In fact, it, the reason that you should be concerned is if you are able to remain and continue in sin and it doesn't bother you at all. That's when you have a reason to be concerned because that's an indication that uh, either you are just completely ignoring and grieving the Holy Spirit or you may not have the Holy Spirit, which means you need to be saved. But if, if sin bothers you, then that's a good thing. So don't, you don't need to, to wallow in it. You don't need to despair. You confess it, you grieve it, you turn from it, and you receive God's grace and you move on rejoicing that you have been counted worthy. We've got to preach that gospel to ourselves all the time. I have to preach it to myself constantly. I'm prone to forget it. Jesus took the punishment you deserve to give you the love that you don't. Don't forget that Jesus's love is not deserved, okay? So whenever you hear the enemy's lie, you don't deserve this love, just look at him and say, yeah, I know that. I know that, but Jesus's blood purchased it for me, and it's given to me by grace. Amen? So Jesus died to be the substitute for sinners. Second reason Jesus died is to bring us to God. This is closely linked for the fir- to the first reason. 
He died to bring us to God. Verse 38, Mark 15, 38 in our passage says that uh, when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the Old Covenant, the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle in the innermost room called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And only one man, one time a year, could enter into that place. And it was the high priest. And he had to offer sacrifices for himself and for the people of Israel. And this was called, happened on the Day of Atonement. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. But the death of the perfect Lamb of God changed all of that. There's a reason that we don't do that anymore. The curtain that separated the, the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, from the outer part of the tabernacle was torn in two because there's no more need for imperfect priests. Jesus is the perfect high priest. There's no more need for the blood of bulls and goats that can't completely remove sin anyways. Jesus offered a once-for-all sacrifice by His blood. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That He might bring us to God. That He might bring us to God. You know, when King David ruled the, the nation of Israel, the Philistines were Israel's mortal enemies. The, the Philistines, uh, and really even before David came on the scene, but uh, when David was king, the Philistines and the Israelites were uh, mortal enemies. And I, I want you to think about something. If, if David were sitting on his throne in his court, and a Philistine, one of Israel's greatest enemies, had walked right into David's palace, what do you think might have happened to that Philistine? Some of David's guards would have thrown a spear in his general direction, right? Like, it wouldn't have been good for the Philistine. But what if David's young son walked into the throne room? What would David have done then? Well, he would have stopped what he was doing and said, What is it, my son? Come here. He would have had his full undivided attention. Church, we were once God's enemies, and to come into the presence of God would have been like a Philistine trying to come into the presence of King David. We couldn't enter into God's presence. But in Christ, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, which means we can enter into the presence of God at any time without fear of judgment. Think about the implications of this just for, for different areas in your life for a moment. This is one of the things I want us to continue to learn to do as a church is whenever we encounter truths like this in the Bible, I don't want us to just stop at acknowledging the truth and going, okay, I'm no longer an enemy of God. I've been adopted as a son and daughter. But what does that mean for your life? Like consider, for example, what does that mean when it comes to prayer? Well, that means that when you pray, you are not coming before Almighty God hoping that perhaps you've done enough to curry enough favor for him to answer a prayer or two. You are coming in Jesus' name. Have you ever wondered why we pray in Jesus' name? Amen? When we pray in Jesus' name, it means that we are, when we ask the Father for something in prayer, it's as if Jesus himself is asking the Father. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. We're not coming in, in my name. We're not coming according to, uh, to, to my track record. I'm coming before the Father according to Jesus' track record. I'm not coming to God because I have earned the right. God knows I haven't earned the right for answered prayer. I'm, I'm coming before the Father because Jesus has the right to enter into the presence of the Father at any time. And Jesus has bestowed that right upon us if you have placed your faith in Him. You are a son and a daughter of God, so you have full rights as a son of God. You can come into the presence of the Father at any time. And you can ask anything according to His will and He hears you. Why do we not avail ourselves of this privilege more often, church? It's an incredible reality. That's, this is why Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, you can come to God's throne of grace with confidence today. 
Our confidence in prayer lies in our union with Christ, not in ourselves. And it's all a gift received by faith. If that doesn't motivate us to pray more, I don't know what will. Why did Jesus die? He died to be the substitute for our sins, to bring us to God. And third, he died to demonstrate God's love. He died to demonstrate God's love. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As I studied this passage, I was struck by the patience of Jesus and the great love he had for the Father and for his people that kept him on the cross. You can feel the seething anger and the hatred in the words of the mockers towards Jesus. Let's look at verse 31 and 32. The chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Jesus, the Son of God, who has existed from all eternity, who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his mouth, who upholds all creation by the word of his mouth, was mocked and reviled by the worst of the worst criminals who hung next to him on a cross. He was mocked and reviled by the very people that he came to save. He was spat upon. He was tortured. And at any moment, he could have put an end to it. Why did he stay on the cross? Why did he not come down? What kept Jesus on the cross? Love. Love first and foremost for the Father because Jesus always does what he sees the Father doing. And secondly, love for you and for me. Love for his sheep that he came to die for and to shed his blood for. Love kept Jesus on the cross. Ironically, when the scribes mocked that he cannot save himself, they were right in a sense. He could not save himself because he had already resolved to save us instead. The cross is the ultimate expression of the love of God. There's no greater gift God could have given than that of his son. When Ever you need evidence that God loves you, you don't look at the circumstances in your life. You don't look at, well, has God answered this prayer yet for healing? Or has God answered my prayer yet for my job? You look at the cross. The cross is where we see the ultimate expression of the love of God for us. You know, when... Uh, a young man proposes to a young woman, he wants to buy her the biggest diamond he can afford, right? You don't like propose to a girl with like a spider ring that you get from Chuck E. Cheese, right? Like if you did that, like what would that communicate, right? Well, number one, it would, you would probably get rejected, you know, like number one. And number two, it would communicate that you don't value her. Like the reason that I wanted to buy the most expensive diamond that I could afford when I proposed to Jen is because it was, I, I wanted to find as many ways as I could to express to her how valuable she is to me, how much I love her. Only the gift of God's son could fully demonstrate the depth of God's love. God did this not because he thinks we are so great, but to purchase a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him and enjoy him forever. It was to display the greatness of his love and worth so that we would respond to it in worship and in awe and in joy. And how could we do anything but worship if we've truly understood and accepted this love that's been demonstrated on the cross? Fourth reason, and the last reason that I'll give this morning that Jesus came to die is to fulfill Scripture. Jesus came to die to fulfill Scripture. He died in accordance with God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And if there's one thing that Mark bends over backwards to get us to see in this passage, it's that what is taking place here is not an accident or a surprise, it was planned. 
Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies during his ministry. And at least 10 of those prophecies were made about his death, and they were all fulfilled right here in this passage. Psalm 22 alone has five different connections to this passage. I'll just give you a couple of them. Uh, Psalm 22, 7 and 8 says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Does that sound familiar to what we just read? How about Psalm twenty-two, fourteen? He says, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. You know, when, when someone is hung on a cross, uh, one of the, one of the uh, impacts that it has on your body is that it actually pulls your bones out of joint because due to the pain and the exhaustion, you're no longer able to hold yourself up. And so you're hanging, literally free hanging, uh, with nails through your wrists and through your feet. And it pulls literally your arms out a socket. It pulls your bones out of joint. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy as he hung there on the cross. Or Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18 says, They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Friends, these Psalms were written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born this event was not an accident. It was planned by God. Jesus was not a martyr. This happened exactly as God ordained it. You know, Jesus told the Pharisees uh, leading up to his death, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they mocked him because they thought he was talking about the building, the physical temple. But Jesus was talking about his body. You know, I've, I've read this passage to you guys before. It's one of my favorites in John chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This is a staggering statement. This is... Clearly not a God who watches the suffering of the world helplessly. This is a God who is in control of everything and who suffered with us and for us. You know, maybe you or someone you love is suffering right now. But we won't always understand suffering while we're in the midst of it. None of Jesus' followers could have possibly seen how Jesus being crucified in this moment was a good thing. There's no way they could have looked at what was happening and said, I can see God's good hand in this. In the moment, they didn't. They didn't understand what was happening. I mean, it's really difficult to understand how God could cause something like death to work out for good. It doesn't get much more final than death, does it? I mean, the disciples saw their, their Savior, the one they thought was the Messiah, hanging and dying on the cross. They, they, they saw as He breathed His last, and in that moment, when Jesus said, it is finished, they heard something different than what Jesus meant. They thought, my hope is finished. Everything I've lived for is finished. The finality of it must have weighed on them like a thousand pounds. How could God possibly turn this into good? Because He's God. That's how. Praise God. We know the end of the story, don't we? We know what happens next, don't we? Jesus breathed His last. He was laid in the grave. And for three days, the weight of the world laid upon the shoulders of the disciples. For three days, in their world... Everything that they had lived for was finished until that day, until that Sunday morning, when two of the women, two of his followers went to the tomb and his body wasn't there. He's alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus has overcome the grave. 
Jesus' body is not in the ground. If you go and look for it, if you spent a thousand lifetimes excavating and trying to find it, you are not going to find it because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's exalted and high and lifted up. And he is coming back again to make all things new. He is coming back to judge the living and the dead. He's coming back to right every single wrong. Listen, church, I don't know what you're going through in your life right now, but I can tell you that God is good. What the authorities, what the, what the Pharisees meant for evil that day, God meant for good. God turned the greatest act of evil ever committed into the greatest act of love and salvation we have ever seen. That's why we can praise God for the cross. That's why we can thank God for something that, that in that moment looked so horrific, so evil, so unjust. How could we ever thank God for something like that? Because God knows how to flip evil onto its head. There's a lot of things I don't understand in life. I don't understand women. <laughs> I don't understand how to cook. I don't understand artists. I don't understand how car engines work. And I don't always understand suffering and evil. But one thing I've come to understand is that I don't need to understand everything. I just need to trust. I don't need to understand how to fly a plane or the principles of aerodynamics to take a flight to Texas. I just need to trust the pilot. And that leads me into my three, into our three responses that we should have to this truth that Jesus took the punishment you deserve to give you the love that you don't. Response number one, trust him. Trust him. God has demonstrated that we can trust him to fly this plane. There was one man at Jesus' crucifixion who saw, who realized he could trust in Jesus. Did you notice it in the passage? Look at, yeah, that's right. Look at verse 39 again says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. You know, Mark is very much wanting to communicate that this is a profession of faith. This is the reaction that he and the Holy Spirit wants all of us to have in response to this passage. I think this centurion responded in faith this way because it got personal for him. He realized that this was no criminal. He was innocent and he was sent from God and he died for him. This centurion presided over the torture of Jesus. His hand slapped his cheeks. His mouth hurled insults. And yet, in the midst of that, Jesus cried, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. This act of mercy got personal for the centurion, and his heart melted. Has it gotten personal for you? It needs to. It's not enough to believe the facts of this story. Listen very carefully to me, guys. It's not enough to believe the facts of the story. The devil believes the facts of the story, the book of James says. Do you believe that it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross? Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Or like the chief priests and the scribes, are you offended at the idea of needing a Savior? Maybe today you need to trust Jesus for the first time. That means confessing your sins, turning from them, and following Jesus as your King for the rest of your life. If you do that, then judgment day is over for you. That means your judgment day is past and you will never have to give an account for your sins because they've already been accounted for. It means that you can boldly approach the throne of God's grace. It means that whether Jesus comes back first or you take your last breath first, whichever comes first, you are going to be able to stand before him in confidence, having known that you have been forgiven, that you've been made whole, that you are clean. But apart, but apart from Jesus, you will answer for your sins on Judgment Day. And friends, Judgment Day is coming, okay? 
there's a reason we need to proclaim this gospel. There is a judgment day coming. God is not going to just look the other way at sin. Sin will be dealt with. Part of what we see on the cross, part of the horrific nature of the cross, is, is to show us just how serious sin actually is. There's a reason that what happened on the cross is so brutal, because sin is grievous and because God is holy. But the cross also demonstrates just how incredible God's love is that he would subject his own son to that in our place, even though we were guilty. So don't put off God's forgiveness. Don't reject his offer of salvation and mercy this morning. Please receive it today if you haven't done so. Confess and repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Response number two take up your cross. We need to trust him and we need to take up our cross. You know, trusting Jesus entails taking up your cross and following him. Before he arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus had frankly told the disciples that he would be killed and that he would rise from the dead. But Peter tried to talk him out of it. You remember that? Peter was unknowingly being used to tempt Jesus. Peter was essentially saying, put yourself first. You don't need to suffer. Why would God want you to suffer? That can't be God's will for your life. You can have the kingdom without suffering. You can have the crown without the cross. But Jesus knew whose voice that was. It was the same voice that tempted him in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. Throw yourself down from the temple and then everybody will know you're the son of God. And the angels will catch you. Following Jesus means dying to our own desires. The same voice that tried to tempt Jesus to have the crown without the cross is the voice that's going to try to convince you that you can follow Jesus without actually suffering with Him. Following Jesus means being last with Him. It means being willing to be mocked with Him. It means serving the needs of others before our own needs like Him. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Does that characterize your life? Is your life characterized by no longer living for yourself, but for him who died and for your sake was raised? If you truly understand how hopeless you once were and how amazing God's grace is that saved you, then like the man who found the treasure in a field and so sold all that he owned to buy that field, it will be an easy decision to deny yourself to take up your cross and follow Jesus. We need to trust him, take up our cross, and third, we need to tell someone. Tell someone. Not only will you take up your cross, but in your joy you will tell somebody. That's the mission that Jesus has given us, the church. And if you won the lotto, you'd be excited to tell other people, right? You wouldn't just keep that to yourself. You'd be calling up your friends. You'd probably be calling up those closest to you, those you love the most first, so that you could tell them about what's happened, about this wonderful thing that's happened in your life, because you want them to celebrate with you. Maybe you even want them to share in the good fortune that you have with you. I can assure you that eternal life in the presence of God is far better than the Powerball jackpot. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are, not, that are of this fold, and I must bring them in also. But how can they come to Jesus if they haven't been told? I read a story about a man who was, this is a true story, he was sentenced to prison, to life in prison in 1949, and later uh, he was paroled to work on a prison farm. And in 1968, his prison sentence was terminated and a letter bearing the good news that his sentence was terminated and that he could go home was, was written, was sealed up, and was sent to him in the mail. But the problem is, is no one ex- ever actually gave him the letter. The letter that said, you're a free man, you can go now, was written, and legally he was free, but he didn't know it because the letter was never delivered to him. And for 10 years, he remained in custody, totally unaware that he was legally free to leave. Until one day, a state parole officer discovered the oversight and told him he was a free man. 
there are people all around us with the sentence of death hanging over their heads, and we have the good news that can set them free. Who's going to deliver it to them? Who's going to deliver it? Are we going to keep letting people walk around not knowing that there is a way to be set free from their sins, that there is a way that they can be reconciled to God? Are we going to fail to deliver this good news to people? Let me ask you, who, who do you know that you need to share this good news with this week? God has placed people in our lives for a reason that don't know Jesus. And one of those reasons is so that we can tell them. <laughs> I mean, why are you a Christian? At some point, somebody told you. It may have been your parents. It may have been a preacher. It may have been a friend. It may have been somebody on the radio. I don't know who told you, but you heard it from somebody. And the only way people in our community, people in our city, people in your family, people at your workplace are going to know is if somebody tells them. Let me encourage you to share what you have heard this morning with somebody this week. And many of you know that as a church, we have a burden to plant more churches because we have a burden for people to hear the good news. And there are many places across North America and the world that need more faithful gospel preaching churches. And two of our values as a church, our values are over here, two of them are bold evangelism and the Great Commission. We have a vision to start our first daughter church by October 2020. And one specific thing uh, that we want to do as a church is we begin to discern what God is calling us to do, where God is calling us to go and to plant churches so that more people can hear this good news is, is we need to go to God in prayer. We need to ask him, God, where do you want us to go? Where do you want us to plant a church? How are you calling us to, to get involved in what you're already doing around us in the city? We also want to seek God for where he may be leading us to partner internationally. There are still thousands of unreached people groups all across the world that have never even heard of the name of Jesus that we just talked about this morning. They have no clue that there is a God in heaven who made them and loves them and died for them. They don't know, and people need to hear. And that's why we exist as a church, so that we can proclaim this message to people. And we believe that as we plant more local churches, we'll be able to more effectively get the gospel to more and more people. Because as more churches are planted, there's more uh, gospel uh, preaching uh, churches that are able to, to, to send out more laborers into the harvest. So what we're going to do is on November 3rd through the 10th, the first week of November, we're going to have a prayer emphasis week. And there's a few specific things that we're going to be pressing in uh, on in prayer from November the 3rd through the 10th. One is, where is he calling us to plant a church? Two is, who is he setting apart to go? Okay, so one of the things I'm going to be asking you guys to do is I'm going to be asking each and every one of you to seriously come before God and lay down your future plans for your life. Put those on the altar and go, God, are you calling me to go? I don't care what you're doing, what your life looks like. I want to challenge you to sincerely go before God and go, God, are you calling me to go and be a part of a church plant? Are you calling me to go take the gospel to overseas to another people group? He's not going to call everybody to go. I mean, if he called everybody to go, then our church would disappear. So obviously not everybody's called to go. But I can promise you he's calling some of you to go. And we want to send you. We want to equip you with everything that you need. The third thing we're going to pray about is what is God already doing around us in D.C. and how can we get involved? We want to specifically intercede for our city. I was reading this morning the, in Matthew chapter 6, and uh, I was reading the, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, and um, you know, the Lord's Prayer starts off with, uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And that word hallowed means uh, honored, means glorified, it means revered. That's, that's the, the, the goal of, of all of creation is that God's name would be hallowed. And it just struck me this morning as I was reading about the, the fact that God's name is not hallowed in Washington, D.C. by so many people. So many people here don't honor God and don't worship God. And I, and I long for God's name to be hallowed here in our city. So we want to pray and seek God intercede on behalf of our city. So let me encourage you to begin praying about this week of prayer right now. 
asking God to speak to us as we lead into this week of prayer. And the way it's going to work, I'm going to send out more details soon, but just real quick. Basically, what we're going to do is Monday to Friday that week at 6.15 each morning, we're going to have a, a Zoom call, a video call, where we'll come together for 30 minutes, and you can call in on your commute to work, or you can you know, do it from your home, whatever. Uh, as many of us as we can gather together, and for 30 minutes each morning, we're just going to spend some time in prayer. And then that Wednesday night, we're also going to gather in person for a corporate night of prayer. And then um, on the, the Sunday, Sunday, November 3rd, and Sunday, November 10th, we'll also spend some extended time of prayer in prayer in our worship gathering uh, on those two Sunday mornings. So I'm excited about that, and I hope that uh, you will begin to prepare your heart for that week as we uh, press into prayer. Um, So having said all that, don't wait until November to begin acting on it. Um, Tell somebody uh, the good news of the gospel that we talked about this week, okay? Um, I'm going to, uh, uh, we're going to move into a time of response and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together as we close out our time of worship. Um, As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Thomas is going to be coming up and leading us, but just let me encourage you uh, to examine yourself this morning. Um, Is there anything in your life getting in the way of denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus? If there is, this is a really good time to go and to meet with God and and to deal with that this morning. If there's something that you know God is calling you to surrender to Him today, then please do that in this moment uh, before we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, And uh, maybe uh, you've never actually placed your faith in Jesus, then now's a great time to do that. You can place your faith in Jesus for the first time this morning as we take the Lord's Supper uh, together. Uh, Let me pray, and then Thomas is going to come as we prepare. God, thank you so much for uh, your word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the cross. Jesus, thank you for demonstrating your love for us. Thank you for being the substitute for us. Thank you for dying to bring us to God. Thank you, God, that you are sovereign and in control of all things, even suffering. God, you are so good. Lord, I pray that we would not quickly lose sight of of the wonder of the cross that we have seen this morning. Lord, we love you, and I pray that you would continue to be glorified and honored now as we partake of the Lord's Supper together as a body of believers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.